Okay, welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. So we have a special episode today. And we're doing a special episode, Shani, because we keep getting requests for this episode. I won't give it away because I know you want to say what we're doing. And we're doing a special episode because today's a special day. So today's Will. Who? Yeah, Will's birthday. Will produces all these things. And yesterday was my birthday. So I don't know if you're jealous that your birthday is (laughs) not in April. And... Yesterday, I went out to lunch with you, Shani, for yeah. my birthday, yeah. and then we went on a scavenger hunt to different bars. That reminded me of you. Yeah. Do you want to say which bars they are? Not really, no. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't reflect very well on me. Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, what is this special episode? Okay. So, it is one of our most highly requested topics, and it's bonds. Um, but before we begin, a short disclaimer that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It does not take into consideration your personal objectives, financial situation, or needs. So, bonds get a bit of a bad rap. They're not as sexy as stocks. They've got a reputation for being boring and low yielding. Today, Mark is going to try and change my mind, and probably your mind too, and convince me that bonds are just as good a time as stocks. Just as good a time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's a high bar. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, a bond is a fixed income investment. And so it represents a loan that's made by a borrower to an investor. And there's lots of different bonds. And we'll talk about some of the different ones, but generally they're issued by corporations or governments. So what's more exciting than that, Johnny? Yeah. And, you know, a little plug for Morningstar Premium. We have data on over 47,000 Australian and global equities. It's such a huge market. I think the breadth and the depth of the market is what adds a lot of excitement for people. And so it's the ability to find opportunities in that pile of securities. Bonds seem a little bit far removed from that. So how do bonds compete against that, Mark? Well, Shani, actually, if we look at the size of the bond market compared to the share market, the bond market is actually a lot bigger. So at the end of 2019, the stock market, this is the global stock market, had a total market cap of $30 trillion. The bond market, meanwhile, had a market cap of $40 trillion. And so it is, uh, it is important to, uh, to point out that the market is not just huge in terms of the total market cap, um, but it's also really, really diverse. Yeah. And I mean, I know that there's government bonds, corporate bonds, inflation protection bonds, zero coupon bonds, lots to choose from. So you've done a webinar on bonds before where you spoke about your favorite type. And I think speaking about the breadth and depth of the market is a perfect opportunity for you to speak about it, Mark. So do you want to speak a little bit about your favorite type of bonds, Bowie bonds? Yeah, I mean, I think we need a little bit of context because I assume most people that listen to this do not watch these webinars. Or listen to David Bowie. Well, exactly. Yeah. Probably both. And if you do watch the webinars, you'll know why podcast is sort of at least my natural place. You know, face for radio, I think is how Shani describes what I look like. Um, but I, I have these little inside jokes on these things that there's a celebrity guest to try to, you know, drum up some excitement, but really it's just me sitting there and I put a picture of a celebrity into the slides and I try to link it a little bit to investing. And of course, in this one, which you're referring to is a picture of David Bowie. And the link is that David Bowie had his own bond. So he decided that he wanted to securitize the future cash flows that he was going to get from his music and issue a bond. And that's what a bond is, right? It's simply just a loan, but many bonds are collateralized. And what that means is that they're backed by something. So like if you get a mortgage, Shani, 
course, the collateral is the house. So if you don't pay it back, they come in, the bank comes and takes your house. So in David Bowie's situation, his, the collateral was these future earnings he was going to get from his music. And Prudential, which is a big insurance company in the U.S., bought all of the bonds. So $55 million U.S. worth. And, uh, and the collateral, of course, as I said, was the rights to his music. Yeah. So what I thought really interesting about this bond um, that you mentioned in the webinar, Mark, was that this bond was actually really volatile because it re- its release coincided with the release of illegal file sharing applications like Napster and LimeWire. Yeah. And I, I will say that I never heard of LimeWire. Yeah, that was maybe more my time. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, what this actually did is it caused these Bowie bonds to be downgraded by Moody's. So Moody's is a credit rating agency and they were worried that he wouldn't make any money off of his music anymore because of things like Napster or whatever this LimeWire is. Um, and, uh, and even though that was a little, uh, there was a little volatility in the end. Um, he paid back the bonds in full, which was good news for Prudential. And Bowie bonds is just one interesting part of the bond market. There are bonds that have been issued for a hundred years. So they don't re- mature for a hundred years. So companies like Walt Disney and Coca Cola did that. There are catastrophe bonds. So insurance companies issue those. So basically as an investor, you get paid unless there is a specific um, catastrophe, so like a cyclone or hurricane. Um, so I think that's pretty interesting. There are social impact bonds, Shani. So Goldman Sachs entered into an agreement with New York City to provide financing for a youth counseling bond. Um, and that was an, uh, an initiative to support um, lowering recidivism rates at Rikers Island. So if rates drop by 10% or more, Goldman made its money back. If they drop by 20%, Goldman made even more money. So 2.1 million extra. This is exciting, right, Johnny? Yeah, this is riveting stuff. Wow. (laughs) Okay. Well, I've still got some convincing to do. I'll keep keep going. Okay. So let's get um, to what we're all thinking about. How have bonds rewarded investors compared to stocks? Traditionally, they've been seen as the boring conservative part of investors' portfolios. Yeah. And I, I, of course, have a lot of empathy for bonds because I'm called boring and conservative, mostly by you, Shani. But, uh, but yeah, bonds have this reputation of being really boring. But if we go back to May 1st, 2020, and remember, this is when the market was still recovering from that February, March dip, the big COVID fall in 2020. And at that date of March 1st, if you went back 20 years and looked at bond returns versus stock returns, Bonds outperform stocks by a lot. So over the 20 years, the S&P 500 did 5.4% a year. Well, long-term treasury bonds returned 8.3%. Long-term investment-grade corporate bonds returned 7.7%. High-yield bonds returned 6.5%. So all of those beat the S&P 500. And I did, I did cherry pick a little bit, obviously with the date, but still a 20-year time period is a long period. Yeah, those returns do sound pretty attractive. And we spoke about this before in our episode on how interest rates impact investments. But this probably isn't a trend that's likely to continue in the future because the market conditions that favored bonds has and is disappearing. Yeah, we can cover that a little later. But I think it's worth mentioning that 
because of the way bonds have performed and because the market is so large and diverse, this is a place where active managers have traditionally done pretty well. Yeah. So in our active passive barometer report that we release at Morningstar, it mentions that indexes don't really cover the full spectrum of what's out there in terms of the bond market, just because there's so much of it. So active managers have an opportunity to look very different to the index. They also tend to do a little bit better in markets that aren't as liquid or as efficient as many equity markets are. Yeah. So, you know, bond markets are a fertile place for active managers. So 40 to 60% of low-cost active bond funds have beaten their passive equivalent over the last 20 years. So let's go back to how a bond actually works. Could you go into a little bit more detail on the mechanics and how an investor receives a return when investing in bonds, Mark? Yeah, absolutely. So when we look at a bond at a fundamental level, as we said before, a bond is a loan. So when you're buying a bond, you're loaning someone money. If you're purchasing a $100 bond, you're giving someone a loan for $100, and that's someone, the bond issuer, so whether that's a government or a company, um, what do they do? They take that $100, and then they're going to pay you back interest. And those terms are agreed upon when the bond is issued or when you buy it. So let's say for this example that the interest rate is 5%. So every year that you hold the bond, you'll receive $5 in interest payments. And of course, you'll get the $100 in principal back when the bond matures. So how does that compare to equities? So obviously, equities are issued by a company through an IPO, an initial public offering, and the money that you pay goes directly to the company. After that, the shares trade at the value the market determines, and the money goes from the sellers to the buyers on the secondary market. In the case of bonds, how do bonds get traded after it's first issued? Yeah, so it actually works in exactly the same way. So it can be directly issued to you, but of course, then it can trade on the secondary market. So if you purchase a bond at inception, the funds go directly to the bond issuer. And then if it trades on the secondary market, of course, if you buy or sell a bond, it is with another investor. So as investors, regardless of whether it's equities or bonds, we're investing for returns. So let's walk through some of the terms that matter when an investor is looking to invest in the bond market. Let's start with the yield to maturity. That's a term you'll see a lot. And it's basically the total return that's anticipated for an investor if it's held until it matures. Yeah. And this total return is made up of two things. So of course, the coupon payments that you're getting, that's part of your return. That's the interest payments. And then of course, any difference between the price of the bond and par. And par is what you'll get back at the end of the bond's life. So if you bought a bond at issuance for $100, you'd receive that $100 back. But bond prices can change a lot when you buy them on the secondary market. The price can fluctuate. So what you receive back and what you can pay for it can be different. And this happens when interest rates change. So let's use an example to see how this works. So there's newly issued bonds. You buy it when it comes out. You know what you're getting. You know what you're paying for. Then there's secondary bonds on the secondary market. You're buying and selling from different investors. So say you buy a newly issued bond at a value of $100, maturing in five years with interest rates at 3%. So you've got a 3% yield. If interest rates change a year into it, to 2%, a couple of things happen. The coupon payment stays the same. It's still $3, but the yield percentage is 2% to maturity in four years. So the price of the bond will change because the yield is 2%, but the coupon payment is $3. The price in the secondary market then is $103.81. Let's look at why. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a lot to follow, right? But <laughs> yeah. but it makes sense, right? So as an investor, as Shani was saying, your five-year bond is now a four-year bond. It's issued by the same government or company, entity. And as long as their credit quality didn't change, of course, has the same credit quality. And we'll cover that in a second. You're getting a $3 a year payment on the bond and interest rates are now sitting at 2%. So you, of course, would be crazy to sell this for $100. 
And that's, uh, and that's the adjustment that the market's going to make. So in this case, the price is going to adjust. So both bonds have the same yield to maturity. And it's simple as that, right, Shani? Yeah, exactly. So as you can see, interest rates change and this influences bond prices to change. Bond prices always change inversely to interest rates. So if interest rates go down, bond prices go up and yields fall. If interest rates go up, bond prices go down and yields rise. Let's explore this impact a little further. How come I always have to explore things further? <laughs> well, you're the one trying to convince me on this, Mark. That's true. That's true. This is this is actually a very long – we've had to do multiple takes because <laughs> Shawnee is carrying around what I'm calling now her hobo water bottle. It's this old, beat-up, just plastic <laughs> water bottle. And the wrapper is scraping off of it and it's all over her face and in her hair. It's uh, It's quite a scene here. Are you judging a book by its cover, Mark? You it is the, just a vessel. You are the water bottles. It's <laughs> yeah. just a vessel. Okay. Anyway, back to bonds. So we're talking about interest rates and the changes that bonds go through as interest rates change. And there's this concept called duration, which measures the change of a bond price based on those changes in interest rates. So different bonds have different features that will react differently to interest rate changes. And it's all measured in duration. So they'll all move in the same direction, no matter what. So they'll move inversely, as Shani was saying, to interest rates, but they'll move at different degrees. So bonds that have a longer time frame to maturity, for example, and that's just a long longer time frame until you get paid back, they have longer durations. So that means that they will have the biggest change in price with interest rate changes. And really, duration represents a change in price. The longer the time frame until maturity, the more sensitive that they are to changes in interest rates. That's why fund managers can have a role in choosing bonds. If they have a forecast of what interest rates are going to do, they can adjust their holdings accordingly. Yeah. And ultimately, though, duration is an estimate, right? It's based on historical moves. And, uh, and you know, you're not going to get that exact change. Um, but it is important to look at them. Um, because it can show you how much your bond or your portfolio bonds is going to change with interest rate changes. Yeah, so let's have a look at an example. So if we look at Vanguard Australian Government Bonds Index ETF, it's a passive ETF that follows an index that's looking at Australian government bonds. The duration is 6.2 years. And duration is measured in years, so it's even more confusing. Yeah, so what this basically means is that if interest rates change by 1%, so if they go down by 1%, then the ETF is estimated to go up in price by 6.2%. So same thing if the other thing happens, if interest rates go up by 1%, the ETF is estimated to go down by 6.2%. So let's talk a little bit more about the relationship between yield and interest rates. And the relationship is illustrated by the yield curve. Yeah. So I will, of course... Explain this? Explain this. Okay. Yeah. So the yield curve can be normal, flat, or inverted. So let's start with normal. The normal yield curve says that the longer it is until a bond matures, the more interest you will get. And of course, that makes sense. If you were loaning someone money and they're going to keep it for longer, you're probably going to want more interest. Because one of the risks that needs to be taken in consideration is that the longer they keep the bond, the more risk there is that something could happen. And we'll talk about a little more about shifts in credit quality in a second. But once again, this makes sense. If I know that someone's going to pay me back in six months, it's a little easier for me to assess if they're going to be able to do it. If I go out 30 years, who knows what this government or this company is going to be like, whether if it's a company, whether their product is even feasible or completely redundant in the long term. And so a normal yield curve says, that, as we said, the further you go out, the more interest that you get. 
If you have a flat yield curve, it basically means all along this maturity spectrum, there's similar interest rates. So if you lend somebody money for a year or 10 years, you'll get very similar interest. And generally, that signals something in the market and basically that there's uncertainty in the economy. Investors don't know what's going to happen, what central banks are going to do with interest rates, the future of inflation. They're just getting a little bit nervous. I don't want you to carry this whole thing, Mark, so I can take the next one if you like. Uh, thanks yeah. for doing for doing your part here, Sonny. <laughs> okay, so there is an inverted yield curve, and it's pretty unusual. So that's when long-term yields actually fall be- below short-term yields. And what this implies is that investors think that the economy is going to start doing really poorly, and there will be reactionary measures by central banks. Usually when economies are doing poorly, central banks lower interest rates when inflation is very low in the hopes of stimulating the economy. When inflation is low, there's a huge concern for long-term bond investors. The coupon rate, the interest to maturity, is fixed. You're going to get the same coupon rate regardless of the inflation rate. So if inflation gets out of control, your coupon payment is worth a lot less to you as an investor. There is another factor that impacts the returns that you get on bonds, and that's credit quality. All right. Well, I'll talk about credit quality since, you know, you did explain one of the three different types of yield curves we can have. So. I'm doing my part. I know. I know you are. Um, so credit quality. So as we said, a bond is a loan. So at the end of the day, how likely it is that you're going to get paid back by whoever you're loaning the money to, that's just what we're calling credit quality. And there are different interest rates that are offered to compensate you for credit risk that you're taking on. So in other words, if people perceive that there's a greater chance that they won't get paid back, they just demand higher interest rates. Yeah. So we can start with a risk-free rate because credit quality is a risk that the bond issuer doesn't pay you back. So if you guarantee that someone will pay you back, it's essentially risk-free. So universally, the risk-free rate is known as a US government rate on bonds. So why, Mark, would the US government be classified as risk-free and have a guarantee to pay you back? Yeah, so it's a good question. And and the answer is quite simple. It is actually pretty difficult for government to default on loans. And that's because they can literally print the money to pay you back. And there are obviously consequences to this, like high inflation and purchasing power of the currency decreasing, but technically the debts can be paid and they won't default. One thing I will note, though, is that I've definitely seen governments default before, like Argentina. Yeah. So, That is if governments are issuing bonds in foreign currencies. And the reason they, of course, do that is because they can't print money in whatever that foreign currency is to pay back holders. Now, why these countries have defaulted is generally because people think that they are poor credit quality and they won't actually take loans in their own currency. And they won't do that because there's a history of things like inflation and not managing the stability of their currency. So let's uh, let's go back and look at the government, U.S. government rate right now. So it's considered risk-free. And as we're recording this, a 10-year treasury bond, the rate is 1.66%. So what about riskier loans? Anything on top of the risk-free rate has credit spread. Basically, the reason why different issuers pay different amounts on their loans is because the chances of these issuers paying back their loans are different. Yeah. And as an investor, as we said before, the riskier it is that they're not going to pay you back, the more you're going to demand an interest to make up for that risk. So when Shani says that there's a credit spread, all we're looking at as bond investors is what we're willing to accept as interest based on the chances that the loans are not going to be paid back. So who determines how risky these loans are? Credit agencies. So Moody's and S&P ratings are the most well-known, but Morningstar acquired a credit ratings agency recently called DBRS. What they do is they go out and rate these different bonds and they rate it based on credit quality, the chances of them being able to pay you back. 
Yeah, and if somebody saw Shawnee with her hobo water bottle, they would never give her a loan. I'd be a junk bond, which we'll get to. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> you just called yourself a junk bond. Okay, here we go. So let's uh, let's take Moody's as an example. So they have a their highest rating is a triple A rating. Um, so for instance, Australian Treasury bonds have a triple A rating, and the highest corporations, the highest rated corporations, can also have. Triple A ratings. Um, so if we look at triple A right now, so on top of that risk free rate of 1.66%, investors are demanding an extra 0.89%. And that's for the risk that a company that's triple A rated may not pay you back. So for triple A, you're getting 1.66% and then that extra 0.89%. And that's a total of 2.55. So you get 2.55% interest to lend money to a top rated corporate borrower for 10 years. And then, of course, there's a bunch of other ratings. So there is a BAA rating. So that's still investment grade, but you're at the bottom of Moody's investment grade spectrum then. And to get an indicative figure of that, we can go look at an ETF. So there's this BlackRock iShares Core Corporate Bond ETF that has a number of investment grade bonds across that spectrum down to that BAA rating. So that's currently yielding 3.06%. So you're getting additional credit, uh, additional, um, interest for the additional credit risk you're taking on top of that AAA amount. And what if I were a bond mark with my homeless water bottle and you really wanted to take a punt? Yeah. So if I didn't want my money back, I would loan it to Shani. But as Shani <laughs> referred to herself before, those are high yield bonds or junk bonds. Um, and so th those are some of the riskiest companies out there. So investors understand that there's a chance that they're not going to get paid back. So if we look at the return of those junk bonds, we can see that increase in yield. So if we look at the BlackRock iShares Global High Yield Bond, it's yielding 4.29%. So you're getting almost another 1% to lend to these high-risk companies. And what if conditions change? Obviously, companies aren't static in their performance and financials. So what if a really stellar company rated AAA performs incredibly poorly or a junk bond becomes more attractive as companies do well? Yeah. So like in your case, you would come in with like a diamond encrusted <laughs> like water bottle tomorrow. Yeah. And I think, wow, maybe I will lend her money. Um, so this does happen. Um, so when bonds are issued, um, a company gets rated. So Moody's will go rate this bond when they're issued. But of course, those situations can change and bond prices will then change. And I think this is where active managers can really go out and earn a return above the index. So a lot of people equate investing in junk bonds with investing in equity. A lot of bond analysts will spend their time looking at creditworthiness of companies, but analysts that cover junk high yield bonds are really just trying to assess a company and whether the prospects of that company will get better. It sounds a lot like an equity analyst because at the end of the day, they're actually doing the exact same thing. Yeah. And they actually have names for when a company's credit situation changes. So you have a fallen angel. So that is a bond that was once investment grade, but it's been downgraded to a junk bond because the credit quality, of course, has gotten worse and you don't want to be that. Um, you certainly don't want to invest in an investment grade bond and have it fall into high yield. Yeah. So, and you also have rising stars, which is the opposite. So it's a junk high yield status bond and the company has improved and moved up. So when you're buying corporate bonds, you really need to think about these things, especially with long-term bonds, the financial health and overall health of the company will matter. Yeah. So you want to become a rising star, mm -hmm. which I believe is 
what I told you during your last review. Yeah, as much as you kind of give me a lot of flack on these things, you kind of like me. I, I kind of like you. <laughs> okay, well, you hear, you heard it here first. <laughs> yeah. um, but let's uh, let's go back and look at the last year. What's happened? Because it actually has been an interesting year in terms of uh, in terms of bonds. So once uh, once COVID restrictions started, and we've of course talked about how the stock market panicked um, back in kind of February and March of 2020. But a lot of stuff happened in the in the bond market. So basically, credit spreads widened a lot, and the market was really worried that some of the weaker companies would. Not not be able to survive the restrictions and their associated drop in revenue. And what this led to, of course, was huge central bank interventions. So central banks were going and purchasing bonds directly. So the US Federal Reserve actually went and bought bond ETFs, which they admitted was illegal, but they did it anyway as a way of shoveling money into the bond market, which of course creates more demand and lowers the yield. And what they're worried about was that all of these companies would go out of business because they wouldn't be able to access capital. So they want to prop up these companies until the COVID-related disruptions calm down. Yeah. And of course, the situation didn't prove. Just like the equity markets once Progress was made towards the vaccine. Once uh, once the markets in general calmed down, um, a lot of this panic subsided. So where are we at now with bond investing? And I think this is where you're really going to have to convince me, Mark. We spoke before about how bonds have been outperforming the stock market. It's happened because we've had a dramatic fall in interest rates. If we look at the cash rate, short-term interest rates, which is managed by central banks as part of monetary policy, in 1990, it was at 14%. We've gone from 14% to 0.1%, and this is why bonds have done really well. They move inversely to interest rates, so as interest rates have dramatically reduced from that 14% in 1990, bonds have inversely performed very well. We saw that a 1% change in that Vanguard example led to a 6.2% negative or positive return. It's easy to see how rates going from 14 to 0.1 would have provided some pretty attractive bond returns. So what does this mean for investors now, Mark? Yeah, I mean, to be clear, I never said that I told you it was a good time to invest in bonds. I just told you that they were interesting and that the bond market is something that you should pay attention to, even as equity investors, because it does impact you. So, um, yeah, if you want to invest in bonds right now, you're investing at a pretty terrible time. So, of course, interest rates are so low that you're not going to get any type of tailwind from interest rates going down. And if we look at 10-year government bond yields in Europe, Bond yields are negative. So in Germany, France, the Netherlands, Switzerland, their government bond yields are actually negative. And so this means you're not only not getting any interest, you are actually going to have to give a little bit of back, give a little bit back. So in Australia, you're getting very little interest, but it's better than negative, right? Yeah. So as investors are going out there and they're buying government bonds from these countries, knowing that they're going to lose money, if they hold these bonds to maturity, they're guaranteed to lose this money. So why, as an investor, would you do this? And the reason you do this is if you think they're going to go even more negative than they are now. We spoke a little bit about the interventions from the Fed around the GFC and COVID, admittedly illegal interventions in capital markets, but the European central banks have done even more. These interventions continue to hammer down these yields. Yeah, so it's a tough time to be a bond investor, as we said. So be careful. Look at the lifetime of the bond and or the lifetime of an ETF or fund that you're going to hold it and think about if interest rates are going to go down or up and look at those durations on any ETFs or funds that you hold. So, Shani, I think we've explained bonds. Do you think uh, you think we did an okay job here? I think we did. Yeah, I think you've convinced me we need to pay attention to them. Okay, that's good. So thank you guys for listening. And happy birthday, Will. And happy birthday, Will. We also, and particularly Shawnee, desperately needs good comments 
on this podcast and good ratings, and maybe then she'll be able to afford a water <laughs> bottle that is not so embarrassing. So thank you guys very much for joining, and we will be back with a new episode soon. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.